Good morning. My name is Florence, and I'll be reading our scripture passage for this morning. I'll be reading from John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 837. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's word. Thank you, Florence. Good morning, everyone. Um, My name's Ben. I'm one of the the pastor elders here at Community, and it's my privilege to bring God's word to us this morning. Um, Before I do that, though, if you guys would permit me, uh, I'd love to give you a few-minute update about our church planning efforts in Midtown and, uh, and some of the things that are going on with that. So if, if you guys were in, uh, in church last week, you heard me start the service by saying I don't work here anymore. And that was not my resignation. Uh, <laughs> that had been decided months ago. But um, I, I was on staff here for a past, as a pastor um, for four years and three years before that. Uh, as, a, as a director, and I've just transitioned off of staff at the beginning of this year um, to be a full-time church planter as our church moves to plant a church in Midtown. And so um, you'll still see Whitley and I, my wife and I, around here. We'll still be in church here as many weeks as we can. I'll still be preaching from time to time. Um, I'll still be serving as, as one of your pastor elders through this year, which I'm incredibly grateful to, to do. But all of our, our vocational efforts are going to go towards seeing this church planted, Lord willing, this time next year in January of 2024. Um, so if you guys will indulge me, and I think you'll be encouraged to hear this, I'd love just to give a few updates about what's been going on as we seek to plant this church. So uh, we've been meeting since October in, in core team gatherings where we've been talking more about what we want this church to look like and 
At our last gathering, we had about 40 people there or so, and there are uh, over 60 people who are, who are coming to those who are interested in Midtown Community Church and who are excited about what the Lord's doing there. Um, uh, this month, February, we're going to be launching community groups. We hope to launch four community groups for this new uh, church plant, and our goal is to get out on the front end of a new church being planted by trying to organically build Christian community into it from the ground up, uh, and so we're really thrilled about that. We just had a leaders retreat um, Friday night into Saturday for people who are going to be leading groups, and I'm jazzed. We got some good people that are coming to plant this church that I'm that are a blessing to me and my wife. Um, uh, lastly, I'll just mention this. You're going to hear a lot more about this in, in weeks to come, but we are in the process of negotiating a lease agreement with a church to, at a physical location. Um, so we'll, we'll talk a lot more about that. You all will be involved in some way, shape, or form in making that decision for us. We'll talk about that in the future, but it's getting close. I'm starting to get excited about it, and uh, I think it's, it's going to happen. So the Lord's really blessed us there. But on, on February 19th, uh, we'll be sharing with you more information about how you all can partner with us. Specifically that Sunday, we'll be talking about how you can partner with us financially to see this church planted. Um, and so we'll have more details coming out about that in the weeks to come. But I just wanted to, to mention that to you all so we can prepare together. I think that'll be an exciting, uh, fun Sunday for us. And we're going to try to celebrate what the Lord's doing and look forward and anticipate and pray for what he might do in the future. But until then, I would just say, since I'm here and my sermon hasn't started yet, um, we, we need people to pray for us. I know I say this every time I get up in front of you guys and talk about the church plant, but we desperately need people to pray for us. We have no hope of doing real, lasting gospel work on our own efforts. It's a waste of time and energy if the Holy Spirit does not breathe upon this and is not in this. So please pray for us. Um, as well, if you are over the age of 40, and have any sort of heart inclination towards church planting, towards Midtown, maybe even just towards Whitley and I, <laughs> um, we would love to talk more with you about joining us. Um, we have a solid group of people that are coming to plant this church, um, but we are desperately in need of people who have spiritual maturity and wisdom. And we trust that if that, if that doesn't happen, that if the Lord doesn't give us those people, that he'll still do the work and mature us in the process. Um, but we also know that there is wisdom and there is health in, in the diversity of the church and in the wisdom that comes um, with age and maturity. And so I'd love to have coffee or a meal with you if you're at all interested in that. Um, and if, if all of this is a surprise to you or you're new to our church or more interested, we have some um, of our pamphlets, informational pamphlets about the church plant up here at the front after the service. Please feel free to come grab one. Um, they're right here on the front pew by our, our own David McHale, who was about to hold one up there. <laughs> so, but let's, uh, let's, let's turn our attention now to God's word. Would you pray with me as we come to study this book that we love. Father, as we turn our attention to your word, we trust that you are a God who delights to speak and that you're a God who delights to give of yourself abundantly to us. And so as we come to your word this morning, we pray that in it we would 
experience and encounter Jesus Christ and that we would have life by placing all of our chips onto him and trusting him. We love you, and it's in his name we pray these things. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at part three of the story of the healing of the lame man on the Sabbath in John 5. So we're going to finish out John 5 today. It's kind of been a three-part sermon with three different preachers here the last three weeks. But the story begins with, with Jesus healing a man on the Sabbath day. Um, and, uh, and this act angers the religious Sabbath police, as Mike Aiken uh, coined them a few weeks ago. And, and the tension builds in the story as the Sabbath police, these Jewish religious leaders, start to get ideas about actually killing Jesus because in this healing and Jesus' own commentary on it, they understand that Jesus is claiming to be God. And then in verses 19 through 29, which, which Pastor Benjamin preached last week, Jesus actually doubles down on that claim and essentially says, why, yes, I am in fact equal with God. And here's how that, a little bit about how that relationship works. And with tensions already running high and with Jesus' claim to the very authority and lordship of God in view, we come to the end of chapter 5. And if the question of all of chapter 5 has been, does, does Jesus really bear the very authority of God? Then this passage, at the end of chapter 5, seeks to ask and answer the question, what effect does Jesus' authority have in our lives? And this morning, as we gaze in, at Jesus in this text, I hope to show you that Jesus' authority compels us to give up seeking the praise of man and to pursue the glory of Jesus alone. And when we do that, we will experience eternal life. In this passage, as we seek to answer that question, what effect does Jesus' authority as God have in our lives? There's two other questions that we have to ask to get to the answer of that question, and that'll be the outline for my sermon today. So if Jesus bears the authority of God, number one, how can we know it? How can we know that that's true? And number two, how do we approach him in light of it? So if Jesus bears God's authority, how do we know it? And how do we approach him in light of it? So first, how can we know it? And texts like John chapter 5 and the accounts of Jesus' life that we call the Gospels make it impossible to claim with any intellectual credibility that Jesus was simply a good moral teacher. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously said that Jesus is either a man with the mental wherewithal of somebody claiming to be a poached egg meaning that he was crazy, or he was a master deceiver, or he was actually who he claimed to be, which is God. But Jesus knows that the claims he's making about himself are massive and audacious claims for a human being to make. He knows this. So in verses 31 through 40 of our text, Jesus lays out for us a list of witnesses to testify to his claims of divinity and authority. So that, as it says at the end of verse 34, that we might believe and be saved. In other words, even though Jesus didn't need to do this, he, he kind of condescends and stoops down to us with his resume and references in hand. He, he gives us 
proof of his divinity and authority so that we might be able to accept the massive and audacious and insane claim that God became a man. In other words, Christianity is not a religion of blind faith. So, so hear this today. If you're, if you're not a Christian or, or you're somebody who's here who is a Christian who is struggling with doubts about Jesus and Christianity, Jesus does not press you to just believe like we're in a Disney movie or something. Jesus takes your, your, your intellectual questions and the difficulty that it takes to believe that a human being was in fact God seriously. And so he gives witnesses and testimony to his own claims. Faith in Jesus as God is not irrational. Faith and reason are not opposed to each other. And that's what Jesus wants to show us. So who are these or what are these witnesses that Jesus calls to the stand here in these verses in his own defense? He calls three witnesses to the stand in defense of his own claims of divinity. The first is John the Baptist. So verses 33 through 35, he, he talks about John the Baptist. And if you remember, John was this herald, uh, the one, the voice crying in the wilderness to prepare a way for the Lord, like it says in Isaiah 40. It promises or predicts that he'll come. And John was not the light, but he was a lamp that was shining, pointing the way to, to Jesus. He was the one that cried out in John chapter 1, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as he saw Jesus approaching. And John was given specifically as a witness and a testimony to the Jewish people. And, and, and he, he said for them and signaled for them that God actually was coming down to save his people and to send a Messiah in the way that he promised he would. John was witnessing and testifying that Jesus was that very person. So, John the Baptist, the next witness Jesus calls are his own works. In verse 36, you see that. He says, I have, I have a witness testimony that's even greater than that of John. For the works the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. His works, his signs, as John calls them, his miracles, testify to his, to his identity as God. And the, the ultimate, the climax of all of these works is his resurrection from the dead, uh, which, which the Apostle Paul later in 1 Corinthians 15 says, oh yeah, and by the way, 500 people witnessed those things, and a lot of those people are still alive and could corroborate if that wasn't true. It's a massive witness, substantial claim there. And if you remember from early on in this sermon series, John actually organizes his whole gospel to highlight the way in which Jesus' works testify to his divine identity. Uh, he, he, lists, he gives us these seven miraculous signs of Jesus throughout the book that culminate in his resurrection so that, it says in John 20, so that we who read might know that he is the Son of God and believe and have life in his name. So, John the Baptist, Jesus' own works, and the last witness to be called to the stand are the Father's very words. The Father himself, Jesus says, testifies to him. And the Father testified to Jesus first at his own baptism. So if you remember in the other Gospels, when Jesus goes in the water to be baptized, the voice comes down from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. 
The Father testifies to who Jesus himself is. But then secondly, the Father also testifies to Jesus in the Old Testament scriptures. And if you notice, that's where Jesus is taking this conversation. That's where we get to in verses 39 and 40. The Old Testament speaks often of a Messiah who would come and save the people from their sins. And and not only does Jesus fit the bill for the Messiah, but Jesus also fits within the patterns of Old Testament people and institutions and ceremonies, all of which were pointing forward to a future Messiah and Savior. Now, let's stop for a moment together. And notice the inherently inflammatory nature of Jesus' words to these religious Sabbath police here. That word in verse 39, where it says, you search the scriptures, that word search, the Greek word there is actually related to the Hebrew word darats, which is not important, except that, uh, except that, Um, that word darats was a technical term that scribes used to talk about people that, that, that like intellectually poured over the scriptures. So in other words, he's saying these things to the most elite and distinguished Bible scholars in the world. That's who Jesus is talking to here. Now picture, if you would with me, a, a rural pastor from West Virginia from the mountains of West Virginia, no formal credentials, just a man who's faithfully loved his church for like 20 years. And he flies to London for this distinguished yearly gathering of the top religious and Bible scholars in the world. And I, London sounds like it'd be the place where that would take place, right? Um, and, uh, and so they, they show up and they have a Q&A open mic time where anybody can walk up and ask a question. And this West Virginia pastor, maybe with a little bit of drawl in his voice, walks up to the microphone and says, actually, you guys don't understand what the scriptures are about at all. <laughs> that... That wouldn't go very well, I don't think. Honestly, they'd probably just laugh the guy off and keep on going with what they were doing. But that's what it's like, Jesus coming to these men and saying this. Jesus, the homeless, wandering teacher with no credentials, goes to these Bible scholars, these men who from the time they were teenagers had Psalm 119 memorized. Have you ever read Psalm 19? It's like 180 verses all about how awesome the Bible is. He had this memorized. And he goes to them and he tells them, hey, you don't really understand the Bible. And the precise reason why you don't understand the Bible is because you don't understand that it's all about me. Talk about lighting a match and throwing it into a situation. If we don't read and understand the Bible as a testimony to Jesus, we don't understand the Bible rightly. But notice what Jesus doesn't do and doesn't say here. He he doesn't drive a wedge between himself and the Bible. On the contrary, he claims that the whole of the Bible, when rightly understood on its own terms, speaks about him. Look at verse 46 with me. This This is where he says it most strongly, I think, in this text. He says, For if you believed Moses, in other words, If you believed the first five books of the Bible, which Moses himself authored, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, 
for he wrote of me. Now, many people have taken Jesus' words in this passage about the Bible and, and applied them the way that a parent might caution a teenager about their friends. So if you're a parent here with teenagers, this will probably, you'll probably feel this in your gut a little bit. But I remember hearing my parents say things like this when I was a teenager. So, so they'll say, uh, if, if they have a set of friends that, that they're not too keen on their child hanging out with, they'll say, yeah, okay, you can spend a little bit of time with, with so-and-so, I guess, but, but, but have you seen Johnny over here? Johnny's a good kid. He, he looks like he's a lot of fun to hang out with. He looks like he's a good influence. Hey, how about you hang, spend more time with Johnny and, and be careful with these, these other friends over here. And, and I think that's how a lot of people read this or, or apply this, this, this text when it relates to Jesus' relationship with the Bible. They'll, they'll say, be careful with, with the Bible. Uh, like, you can spend some time with it, sure, but like, make sure you're careful with it. Uh, but, but have you seen Jesus? He looks like a great guy. You, sh- you should go spend some more time with him. Jesus and the Bible are inseparable. If you hear people say things and, and, and use this passage as a reference, like the Bible is only inspired and profitable for us where it directly speaks about Jesus then you can point to Jesus' words in verse 46 and say, Jesus' whole point here is that the whole Bible, rightly understood on its own terms, is all about him. It's all a witness to him. Jesus doesn't drive a wedge between himself and the scriptures. He brings them lockstep together. In fact, rather than running from the Bible, this gives us the framework to engage the Bible the way we're supposed to understand it. So, so as you study the Bible on your own, or as you hear our preaching here at our church and, and seek to, to apply it to your life and also seek to hold us accountable as your preachers of the Bible, as you take part in community groups, the question to ask every time you come to the Bible is, did I see Jesus? If I did, then I probably understood it rightly, or I'm on the right track. Jesus and the Bible are inseparable. Search the scriptures. Yes, do not stop searching the scriptures, but plumb the scriptures to their depth, to their actual intent, to where they lead us to the word in flesh, Jesus himself. And as I say when I officiate weddings, what God has joined together, Jesus and the Bible, let not man separate. So the problem is not with the Bible. The problem here is with how we approach the Bible and how we approach Jesus. And so we, we did our best to answer how, how can we know that Jesus bears the authority of God. But our second question to answer this morning is how, how do we approach him in light of that fact? How do we approach Jesus if he is really who he says he is based on this passage? Well, let's read verses 37 to 44. We're going to read that big chunk again. And we've already spoken to this a little bit, but as we read, watch how the tension grows between Jesus and the religious Sabbath police here. The verse 37, it says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, 
His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus pulls no punches here. He, he tells these religious leaders that they don't have God's word abiding in them, that they don't understand the scriptures rightly, and that they don't have the love of God in them. And remember who he's talking to. Now, what leads him to speak so strongly to these people? Why does he confront them so strongly? I think in verse 44, we have our answer. Jesus confronts these leaders because they seek the praise of people more than the glory of God. Jesus was not the Messiah that these guys were looking for simply because Jesus would not flatter them and scratch their back if they scratched his. They wanted a savior who would stroke their ego and who would lift them up as the good guys. And that's precisely why in verse 35, if you look, it says, this was interesting, this caught my eye, I'd never seen this before this week. It says, they rejoiced for a little while in John the Baptist's light. But why only a little while? Well, because when Jesus showed up on the scene, they were like, that's not the savior we're looking for. That's not the kind of guy that we want to follow because he shows up claiming to be God and doesn't play by their rules. He doesn't seek glory from them and they want nothing to do with him. In other words, they don't want to give up their own authority and the glory that it brings to them. And these Jewish leaders, like the rest of us, are parasites. We are parasites for the praise of other people. We all like to pretend, like, like even when we assess our own sin, we like to say, yeah, sometimes, like, like I, I, you know, I, I, I pretend like I'm God. Like, I act like I'm God in my own life, and, and I, I, I act like I have authority, and I try to seek the praise of people. But really, that, even that is a cover-up to reveal what's really going on in our hearts. Because deep down, we really are just parasites that need to feed on the approval and praise of others to stay alive. That's what's going on at a heart level. We can't survive without sucking the praise out of other people to sustain us. In order to form our own sense of self, in, in order to justify our existence in the world, in order to quell our own insecurities, we walk around trying to feed off of the praise of other people. And parasites desperately search for a host from which to draw life. Because apart from that, they're going to die. 
And in our desperation to feed off of the praise of people, we inevitably mistreat the people whose approval and praise don't matter to us. That's what these religious leaders did. Think about, in this passage, the man who had been laying there for 30-some years, lame by the pool, is, is, is healed, and he picks up his mat and begins to walk, and he says he's been healed, and they are so petty and focused on their own glory that they're receiving from other people that all they can do, as Benjamin pointed out last week, which I thought was such a good observation, all they can do is say, hey, what's up with your mat? What's going on with that mat that you have in your hand? It's all about them and the laws that they've created to make themselves feel righteous and to get the approval of other people. And it causes them to mistreat this man. And that's exactly why Jesus comes to them and says to them, you do not have the love of God within you. You can't love God or other people when you're focused only on acquiring the next host from which you are going to draw the praise of men. People, when when our hearts are like this, people are either just simply objects or tools from which to draw praise for ourselves, or they're objects to be discarded. You can't love people when this is your outlook. And, And as parasites, we will use whatever means necessary to attach ourselves to the life source. And this is the most insidious part about our parasitic nature, is that it exists comfortably right alongside of religious activity. The Bible and Christianity can be the very means by which you stroke your ego and mistreat other people. And that's precisely what the religious leaders did. They used the Bible and, and, and the law in order to, to puff themselves up and mistreat others. And so much of our righteous behavior, so much of our religious effort and energy, so much of our posturing on social media, and even for some of us, those Bible reading plans that you, that you made a few weeks ago, so much of that is a cover-up operation for our own glory-seeking. As I preach... Preaching is a cover-up operation so often for me for glory-seeking. And so, how do you approach your knowledge of the Bible? Do you use your knowledge of the Bible or your righteous living as a way to get other people to notice you? To give you little pats on the back and little golf claps? Do you alter your accounts of sin of your own sin when you're sharing in community group or you're sitting across from a brother or sister at coffee to sound more pious before other people? Do you frequently use theological knowledge to put others down and exalt yourself? These are indicators of that parasitic nature that's in all of us. But I think the main reason why Jesus speaks so strongly to the religious leaders in this passage uh, and towards and directly at their glory seeking is because that posture in our heart is directly antithetical to what a posture of faith looks like. Look look with me again at verse 44. This this just popped out when when I saw it. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. 
You see that. Jesus says, how can you believe when this is the posture of your heart? Think about it just in these terms. Physically, posture of our bodies. If you are physically just gazing at your own chest, where your heart is, you you can't see anything that's up here. You, You can't see outside of yourself. Looking down at yourself and me looking at one of you in the eye, those two things are antithetical to each other. We can only be in the business of seeking one person's glory at a time, which is why in Galatians chapter one, the apostle Paul makes the same point. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. And so what this passage is a call to is that if you're here today and you acknowledge, that's me. Like that's, I, I am a desperate parasite for people's approval and glory. You can turn to Jesus. And all that that takes is to stop looking at yourself and look at him. And if Jesus is, in fact, who he says he is, if he's God in the flesh, then that's the only way that it makes sense to respond, to look off of all of our own petty efforts to seek our own glory and look at the king of the universe who has life in himself. Life is found when we acknowledge that life is not found in us. And the beauty of turning to Jesus is that since he is God, if he is who he says he is, if he's God, then he is not like us. He does have life in himself. Verse 26, if you look back in chapter 5, where Jesus is, is, is talking about the authority that he has with, with God, he makes this statement. He says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. In other words, Jesus is not like us. Jesus is not dependent on anyone else for life. Jesus is not a parasite. Jesus' well never runs dry. He possesses life in himself because he's God. And when we come to him, we come to the inexhaustible source of life. When we seek him and his glory, we, we stop desperately needing to extract life and praise from the other people in our lives, and we are freed to truly love God and others. We can truly experience eternal life because our eyes are off of ourself and they are on him, and we actually have a source of life that will not disappoint and that will not run dry. Because Jesus is God. And in Jesus, not only do we have the God of all authority who is the source of our life, but we also have a picture, a human picture of what it looks like to find life in seeking God's glory alone. Look with me at verse 31. This is the most, I think, the most puzzling verse in this text. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. And you're like, wait a minute. In in verse 44, just a few verses later, you say, you tell us not to seek glory from other people, but to seek your glory. 
So how is it that we're supposed to seek your glory, Jesus, and yet you don't receive glory from people? And I think Jesus here is speaking of himself as a man. You see, because Jesus shows us what it's like to to enter into the world and live, not desperately seeking the approval of men, but living for the glory of God alone and from his glory and approval alone. And Jesus does this, submits to the Father's authority all the way to the cross, where he has the life sucked out of him by glory-seeking, parasitic people like you and me. But he is the God who has life in himself, and he raises from the dead, and he sits at the throne of the universe, and he invites all of us to come to him. But because, You see, because Jesus is God, who has life in himself, and because Jesus is the man who perfectly sought God's glory with his life and not the glory of other people. We can approach him as our savior, we can trust him in faith, and we can live for his glory alone. And in pursuit of his glory, you and I can find eternal life, and we can finally be free from seeking other people's approval. When you trust in Jesus, you're not a slave anymore. You're not a slave to other people's opinions of you. Your existence is not justified on the basis of the praise of others. You don't have to subsist day to day based on how other people value you. You have an eternally abundant source of life from which to draw resources from every moment of every day. The God of heaven came down to share his life with you. So don't settle for using religion to garner the praise of other people. Don't settle with basing your whole self on what other people say about you. Run to Jesus, who is the God of life in himself, in whom your very life is hidden with Christ in God, as it says in Colossians chapter 3. So I leave you today with with a simple question. Where will you seek life? Will you continue the miserable and desperate attempt to seek life by sucking life out of other people and feeding off of other people? Or will you surrender to the authority of Jesus and find in him your eternal source of life from which you can live a life that is full as you seek his glory and seek to love other people because you are so filled up, you don't need to live for the glory of other people anymore. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are not like us, but that in Jesus Christ you have become like us. That you are the God who is so abundantly and overflowingly full of life. You don't have to search it, search for it anywhere else. And yet in Christ you became like us and you lived a perfect life. You showed us what it looks like to seek the glory of God alone. And you died and rose again so that we might take part in that life. 
And so, God, I pray that since that is true, that we would live as people who are free. People who are not slaves to, other, to, to others' opinions. People who don't base our entire day off of what other people have said about us. It's exhausting. Help us to run to Jesus, to trust in him, and to love you and others as a result of it. Thank you for showering your grace and love and life upon us. In Jesus' name we pray.